0: This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights.
1: Housing is actually the infrastructure of racial capitalism. If you look at any city or any community, you can tell where's black, where's brown, where's white. You can immediately orient yourself As a capitalist, to what's in your interest, just on the visual cues of residential segregation. Anybody who says housing is just an issue, you know, has not studied history and how much effort, energy, pain, drama, blood was put into building and maintaining the lines and walls in our housing system, because to me, part of them are are to separate you and I.
0: Hello and welcome to The Hegemonicon, a podcast from Convergence Magazine, This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s, trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. Welcome to the Hegemonicon. This is uh, your latest episode in our series on what we are building, which is talking about the most noteworthy organizations and initiatives on the left today, where people are building power. And you know, when we talk about the foundational economic relationships under capitalism, several of them really stand out. There are bosses and workers, there are creditors and debtors, and there are landlords and tenants. And these are all relationships that you know many of us are born into. There's no morality in it other than happenstance and circumstance. And the capitalists squeeze the rest of us for profit uh, in the workplace, in our homes, and through debt relationships. And so lots of people are talking about these relationships in um, kind of a common way, as places where class consciousness can really be developed. And recently, we spoke with Alex Hahn about the state of the labor movement, which is very exciting right now. Uh, This week, we're talking about tenant organizing with my guest, John Washington of Buffalo, New York. Um, John is an organizer and trainer with the Homes Guarantee Campaign. John, I'm really glad to have you on the show. Um, Why don't you just introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit about what the Homes Guarantee Campaign is?
1: Uh, yeah. So my name is John Washington, an organizer, and i um, been working on the Homes Guarantee Campaign for several years now. And really, it's a really simple idea. In the richest country in the history of the world, everybody should be guaranteed a home. Uh, and that is a really simple idea that actually comes against the contradiction of, one, the relationship that tenants, landlords have, but also renter capitalism, right? We are all tenants. Uh, even, you know, uh, you, I took an Uber today. I was a tenant of that Uber for a moment, right? So we have this, like, phase where Capitalists are looking to rent everything out and leverage us against each other. And uh, we're trying to build unions and trying to build clarity, uh, political education and strength for people to understand those contradictions, react to them and and build power through them and and hold that tension. Because we actually think part of the reason that um, we're in the place we're at today is because tenants have not been exerting their leverage in the same way that workers have. And that's why, you know, we're at where we're at.
0: So you've been organizing around economic justice um, for over a decade now. Tell me about how you got politicized around this issue in particular of housing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think my lived experience, you know, um, moved around a lot as a kid uh, for lots of different reasons. And um, just real young, you know, born in New York, looking at the difference between you know, Wall Street and Bed Stuy as, as a kid, and then moving, I like, lived in Seattle, Cleveland, uh, Connecticut, been in Buffalo for a little over 20 years now. Um, but in just bouncing around, I've just always been like, what what is going on here? Uh, and then experiencing, you know, bats of homelessness. And then really, honestly, it was interesting you say about like, debtors unions is I became a debt collector. And I think, you know, I always hated the rent. I was always like very radical, you know, reading lots of radical economic literature. But I think being spending 10 years and trying to get out of homelessness, being a debt collector really showed me like the fallacy of this. And I think like the 2008 financial collapse you know and the Occupy Wall Street movement really hit me because I had spent I got taught about racial capitalism by debt graders by people in collection agencies mm-hmm. who basically tell you how probable it is that someone will pay your debt back based on the zip code the geography home ownership rates a whole public policy profile that bankers do on every community and so I saw that before I organized and I really got taught it as a way of like you want to get this money you you're not gonna get it Um, in these zip codes and I felt you know I feel like I went through this arc of first being offended at the racism of like wait a minute you're saying I can't like my people don't have money and then over the years like oh yeah they don't and there's actually very specific and intentional reasons why and then you know seeing the racial wealth gap in real time all day every day and then watching that 2008 collapse and just how the different dominoes of our economy and the way that it's structured the way our free market is actually structured really hit me that like oh I'm actually playing a really powerful role in advancing the racial wealth gap. Um, And I can't do that anymore. I can't live in a place where I have to trade. I've always felt like capitalism puts us in this position where we have to trade what we believe we deserve ourselves for someone else's oppression. And I, I always thought, you know, not selling drugs, not getting into, you know, all the things you can get into in Buffalo, New York and in black and brown communities. Like I was doing something better by like sitting at a desk and I think, uh, 2008 is the year that I realized, oh, actually, um, I've cost thousands of people their homes um, and contributed to this culture. And I, you know, I I can't sit with that. It took me years to, like, actually figure out what to do with that feeling. Um, But I really got politicized by actually robbing people for bankers over the phone for for 10 years.
0: That'll do it. Um, Thank you for walking that journey so that then you can help other people to, um, you know, build power around not just the oppressions that we face, but the ways that we're made agents of those oppressions. So that's a really powerful story. Thank you. So I think everybody is more or less familiar with the idea of a labor union, even if they haven't been a member of one. But um, fewer people are aware of what a tenants union is. So could you... Start there. What is a tenants union, and tell us a little bit about the state of the tenants movement around the country today?
1: Yeah, so a tenant union is really a simple idea. It's it's a group of tenants. And tenants, to me, uh, traditionally is like there's someone who owns a building and you're paying them rent for the building. Um, but I also believe we have municipal tenants uh, right here in Buffalo, New York. There are many people who, you know, the Brown Administration foreclosed because they couldn't pay their taxes uh, in ways that were easily preventable that have left Buffalo a shovel-ready city for developers. I'm a homeowner now. I just bought a house this year. And I also, if I don't pay the bank, there is I have more privilege, right? There's more language to how the process goes. Uh, but the reality is um, I can still be put out of my place. It's just going to take about 18 months longer than it would if I was a tenant. And I have this like presumed stability that comes with you know my ability to pay. And so, you know, we think that there are bank tenants, municipal tenants. Uh, We have a lot of folks in trailer parks around the country. So I guess really a tenant is someone for whom another has leverage over like where they live and how they live their lives. Uh, We can put modifiers on that and make it even deeper. But um, that's really what it is. And then a tenant union uh, is really a group of people that want to build power through that contradiction. And I don't want to put any too much more of a sharp definition on it, because there are so many types of housing, and there are so many types of leverage over housing right now, that that basically the the just like workers' unions, they're all different reactions to the conditions that people are in. Um, but ultimately, it's it's whatever whatever formation, whatever we want to bring together, to focus on, like, how do we all get our interests met, right? How do we get the stability? Uh, Really, stability conditions are usually the things that people are facing. And because housing, it's always been a commodity in America, but I think it's become a powerful, and, and really, it's a bet right now. A lot of people are bet on our housing market. That means that those who made those bets want there to be that much more consistent ability from the government and from individuals to make sure that those bets, bets follow through. So for us, a tenant union is really about bringing people together and creating a formation that allows us to negotiate um, and to build power around that leverage, because the irony is most of these people are using our money to pay their rent to another renter, right? Whether that be Federal Reserve, FHA, Freddie Mae, Fannie Mac, like the irony of renter capitalism is actually the biggest capitalists are also the biggest renters. And I think that our rent means a whole lot more to us than it does to them.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's all about the terms of debt down the chain. Uh, each step down the line, uh, you're passing on a higher interest rate and trying to get a little slice. Um, what is the importance of the unionization and the union concept here? Because I've seen people uh, take pains to distinguish between housing as an issue around which we advocate uh, and really the the emphasis on being a union of tenants.
1: So for me, one of the big parts about unionization actually was the role of federal government. Um, and the role of the state in this relationship and like how the state plays a role in all relationships. So for a tenant union, the reality is each context is subtly different, like each boss is different, each company is different. Even if you have the same company, you could have a bunch of McDonald's, each one is gonna be different. And so for me, what's important about unionization is the solidarity of leverage, is strike power or the potential for it. We, we often don't actually have rent strikes, but we found that even the concept or the idea that people could get organized enough to strike totally changes all of the power dynamics. And I think this is also about just the current state of organizing, which I think is, is often very powerless. It's often about uh, moralism. It's often about this like, oh, well, you should treat these people better instead of these people are actually the source of your wealth. And we have an ability to negotiate the fact that we are the source of your wealth uh, in, our, in our interest. And so I think the union concept is really important because it says, one, we need to be in solidarity with each other to like little U union, like we are all actually workers, we're all tenants of something in some way. And there is this big level solidarity. And then we have some situational practices of like, this is this is where workers end up. This is where tenants end up. And this is how we're going to react together to those situations. Um And long term, the fundamental knowledge that like, if the workers of the world unite, if the tenants of the world unite, I think the thing about with with workers is very difficult to cooperatize a workplace, and most people would not actually want to own their workplaces. They're just there because they need to get their needs met, obviously some people who love their work. Uh, but I think with, with tenancy, actually there's, there's, there's a lot of theory of property uh, in radical spaces, and I think that Tenancy is actually a way for us to, every everything in our housing market has been organized so that we offer all the power and get nothing back for it, but a place to live. Mm-hmm. And I think flipping that dynamic actually is much more powerful than just what it means for each individual tenant, but actually what it means for property relations in the country and for power relations, because power relations are defined by property relations. And this is one of the only moments we've had in the history of the country where there is theoretically equal ability for people to own property um and so I think that right now it's so important that in this particular moment we're unionized against those interests because one they're the driving force of I think all economic behavior um, if you look at 2008 housing market collapses the global economy collapsed the American housing market actually is not like finite like it's not numerically like a huge part of our global economy and yet because it is so over leveraged on their side uh, it actually drives a lot of the way that that our Uh, The global economy behave. And so I find that really interesting. The idea that like 20 percent of people not being able to pay their rent or mortgages can collapse the global economy when that amount of money to those people really isn't that much money. And it just shows you a lot about the structure of power. Uh, And I would argue, like, you know, with people who are just like, oh, housing is an issue. No, housing is actually the infrastructure of racial capitalism. If you look at any city or any community, you can tell where's black, where's brown, where's white. You can immediately orient yourself as a capitalist to what's in your interest just on the visual cues of residential segregation. Anybody who says housing is just an issue, you know, has not studied history and how much effort, energy, pain, drama, blood was put into building and maintaining the lines and walls in our housing system, because to me, part of them are, are to separate you and I, right? To make it so that mm-hmm. folks like ourselves actually never develop a shared interest or an understanding that we possibly could. Um, and so, you know, somebody who grew up in, in, a, in a lot of different hoods, like there's, there's, a, there's, you know, a moral technique says the ghetto is like a prison with invisible bars. No matter where you go, it follows you where you are. And so I think our housing system is the platform, like the placing place for all these other racial hierarchies, gender hierarchies, uh, worker and debtor hierarchies. And it, it's a conditioning place of identity for us as people, right? Like I still, mm-hmm. no matter how much I grow, no matter how much I read, no matter how much I learn, like I still very much identify with the places where I'm from, with the with the homes that I survived in when I was a child and with the traumas and benefits that those things brought. And so I think a lot deeper, I'm, I'm sure you, you, you've got to run with movement generation a little bit in your time. But, you know, we talk about like the the importance of home. And so a lot of this actually comes from the fact that like, also from a power perspective, we're going to build power. If I'm out here canvassing, if I'm out here doing protests or whatever, but I don't know where I'm going to live in the next three months or my assumption is that over the next five years, I'll live seven or eight different places. And I'm just kind of waiting, you know, to get kicked out of my place. I'm not a powerful person. Like, I can't feel my full power unless I can go home and say, this is my home. And I know that there's going to be people who will fight for that home with me. And I think for the students of climate change, like... We're at a place where we're going to need to protect our homes, like in a, in a way that's not policy centered, that's not about all of these ideas. But it's also about, like, how do we actually house people? How do people practice living communally uh, in defense of and in support of each other? And so to me, the tenant union is a place of practice of power. It's a place to build leverage uh, against capitalists. And it's also a place for us to actually just like figure out how to be together and share our interests and negotiate with other people, which are just practices that even if you're not up against someone who's ideologically opposed to you, I think we're losing um, as humans because capitalism has commodified, you know, all of these relationships and all of these transactions that used to be pretty natural for people who, who lived together. But
0: That's that's really great. I mean, yeah, so much in there that um, uh, I'd love to follow up on. I mean, speaking personally, you know, my background is in, it was in climate and climate justice and than it's been in the last few years that I've really started to organize around tenancy and housing, and it 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 comes from this really self interested place that you're describing. This like I I would like myself, my family, and my friends to have secure housing in the 2030s, 2040s, and 2050s, and on, rather than being permanently displaced in an ongoing fashion every every year, every two years, like you said, or simply just dying of exposure in the 2040s because of a, a climate disaster and housing insecurity. This is all very real possibilities that we're dealing with. I mean, we're having to deal with sheltering needs here in Lansing, uh, extreme heat, extreme cold, and it, the just the security net is is far from up to snuff and housing insecurity is the uh, the baseline existence that's taken as given. And I, I cannot accept that. I don't think any of us should accept that because conditions are only going to get more dangerous on top of the existing housing insecurity that people are dealing with. Uh, let's move on to a, a, an organizing question, which is, uh, based on our experiments that we've been running in the last several years here in Lansing, um, I've been part of some of them. There's other comrades who have been part of others in um, organizing um, at you know a building level um, around um, tenancy, bad conditions, too expensive rent, um, you name it it seems that the choice of Target really makes a big difference. And Mm -hmm. just because a shop is hot and people are complaining doesn't necessarily mean that the tenants have tons of leverage over the landlord. Whether ownership is local or out of town, big, middle, or small, and you know the details of the corporate ownership structure actually make a really big difference. And some landlords are more vulnerable to public shaming, uh, collective action, rent strikes, and others um, might be less vulnerable or more able to just cash out and um, sell to some other property owner who who you know has a different financial structure, and they're 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 more willing to tolerate the the rent strike than the previous owner. So. What can you say about what kinds of shops are most ripe for tenant organizing that you and the Homes Guarantee campaign are are, are learning around the country?
1: Yeah. Um, well, one, there's just many pathways to the same place. Right. And I think the, the question of leverage, and this is one of the reasons why we're running a campaign we're running right now uh, around the FHA and the FHFA and, and demanding tenant protections, because most of these folks would not be landlords if it wasn't for the enormous amount of federal subsidy that they get. Um, the government has made it from day one in 1938, when they started these processes, their goal has been to make it as profitable as possible to be a landlord. And so I think with the different shops, um, it really starts with leadership development, and it really starts with vulnerability. And what's what I find really interesting is, um, you know, most of the tenants that I talk to, like, there's this arc of like, conditioning that you kind of have to go through where we've been really conditioned to accept pretty terrible conditions. We've been conditioned to accept that in a way that we would never accept like in a store. Like I know plenty of people where you took them to a store, you bought them something and it wasn't what they wanted. They would go right back in. Can I speak to your manager? Right. Can I? And I think with housing, what's interesting is there's this balance between how people are treated and then class wise, like the poorest people are treated the worst and are conditioned to be treated the worst and often have the most leverage because they represent not just their rent, but also financing, right? And the financing of the federal government. So Mm -hmm. I think when you go into a place that is federally federally backed, uh, if it's an affordable housing, which would be state, but still federally backed, right? The different vehicles to me are just different leverage points that we can add to the natural contradiction. So the natural contradiction is, most landlords cannot survive without the rent, right? Because their rent is being paid to someone else. And that's why I think like, there's this whole concept of like rent strikes. And I think while those still don't happen too often, part of the reason is because landlords are actually so afraid of them. Um, because their mortgages and mortgage backed security, they have investors and other folks and they're just flipping over and over and over again. And so every time they do that and landlords who are like that, that means that they they, they can't deal with any hiccups. And so that's a huge, huge form of leverage. And then there's this interesting thing where like tenants actually don't know that, right? Tenants have been conditioned, like most tenants have downloaded what they believe about their relationship from their landlord, from their parents, a few other folks in their community maybe. There's just kind of like general accepted rules about like how you live in an apartment, but very rarely are people clear on their rights. And so we both organize tenants at the building level and we organize them as the collective. And to me, those are just like two arcs of like leadership development and awareness. If a building is like really terrible, um, most likely there's a group of people in that building that is constantly talking about how terrible that building is, that are communicating about it. And so for me, it's not even about necessarily adding anything different. It's more about like What is the juice that's there? Like, how are people reacting to the conditions that they're living in? Is there an association? All that stuff. And then once you can really tap in with this small group of people that are always, you know, in the vestibule, in the community room, right? Like, they know everybody. Everybody says hi to them. It's really the the degree to which they're willing to take risks. And because I think tenant organizing is really interesting in that it, it really, it forces you as an organizer to build leaders, Right. Because the folks in that building are not going to listen to you um, the way that they're going to listen to folks who they live with and especially people who are in those leadership roles. So I think we have like, you know, ways that we treat federally backed mortgages. We have ways that we treat affordable housing. We have like thought processes around those. But honestly, most of those are just like, okay. so basically that means that the rent comes from the tenants and it also comes from the state. And that means that we need to organize both at the same time, because if a landlord were to lose both, not only would they lose the building, but they would also like lose the privilege of credit. And credit's a very interesting thing in especially when it comes to like Litech, the FHA and these other funding mechanisms, because it's like some of these landlords are getting fed. and and what we're trying to really break apart now is the idea that like because theoretically the federal government needs to employ more landlords, like that's its theory of how it makes rents lower is to actually subsidize landlords more. The more that absolutely we absolutely throwing money at them, just, yeah, literally just throwing money at them, the more we can affect both sides of, of those 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 coins and the more we can show up day one saying we've actually been in conversation with the federal government. We've been getting conversation with your state government. We have representatives who are actually like on the housing committee who who actually hold the strings um, you know, to these processes because most of these guys, they want to leverage more. Right. And if you look at like BlackRock, right, they like own, you know, like seven point nine trillion dollars worth of stuff like they accumulated that by keeping flipping these loans and flipping them and flipping them. So there's another layer of interest here where a lot of these bigger landlords or the real estate investment trusts or the managers and organizers of smaller landlords are very concerned with government funding because government funding is really the only way that the housing market works. And so I'd be interested to like dig into some specific situations. But in, in our experience, it's really about the leadership development of the base. And once the base is clear on their interest, like actually their interest, not what they think they can get, not, well, I don't like this, but, what, but you know, it is what it is kind of attitude, but actually, oh my God, we're paying all their rent to them. They're making this much profit. The government's giving them this much money. If we take our piece away, what? it's like getting that to that place of like, if we took this piece away, what actually happens? Like, and, and, and that feeling of not just like we're saying we have power, we're marching in the street, but it's like we actually did the math. And if we can get these three people who are the keys to your government money, and we can get 60, you know, 50 to 60% of the tenant base here um, to make a public commitment that we're gonna show up in our interest. Um, often that, that, that totally changes the power dynamic. I won't say it wins, but it totally changes the power dynamic. And I think a lot of organizing is done from a place of having no leverage, actually, or, or having almost all narrative leverage. And so then when you get to the table, nothing happens. And I think in tenant organizing, getting to the table gets to a different stage uh, where then you actually get to see, okay, how do these people actually react when something is on the line for them? And I think what I found really interesting about the critiques and just the way that our, our work is talked about sometimes is I think that people make the assumption that we're just getting a lot of tenants to ask very loudly for landlords to like treat them better. And the reality is we're getting them to be clear on where they have leverage and how to use it. Um, and I think you know, from my perspective, I, I tend to focus on leadership development. I get this from like Phil Jackson, who was like, you know, I don't, I don't produce championship teams. I produce champions, right? Like my goal is actually to develop players to have a certain mentality, to have a certain orientation to the work that allows them to operate more powerfully and also to figure things out that will come back to me. Um And so I think I feel that very similar in that, like. Our goal is to incubate and, and help tenant unions develop around their particular set of like conditions and contradictions, and then to help them scale that up through training and leadership development, and also to learn as a feedback loop. I, I have learned so much from all the groups that we work with because I had my presumptions, I had my, my biases, um, and so I think like there are always going to be situations where it does work and where it doesn't work. And our goal is like, if we cannot make the the contradiction work as we want it to in the moment, like what is it going to take for us to be able to do that tomorrow? Right. And what, what attitudes, beliefs, behaviors are we going to be able to shift in folks along the way? And then I think, you know, to be real, every, all campaigns have examples, right? Like KC tenants, uh, KY tenants, Louisville tenant union, Bozeman tenants. We have these groups that are really, figuring out the the praxis of our methodology of like how to do these things. And then being able to say to folks, hey, maybe at this particular moment in your context, you might not be able to re- be ready to do this today, but hey, these folks weren't ready to do it two years ago and look what they're doing now. So at the end of the day, it really just comes back to like being really adamant about those basics of one-on-ones and of people having like real authentic self-interested relationships. Cause I think however much time that takes, like we move at the speed of trust, if we take that time, you know, we can do way bigger things than we can, you know, rushing and trying to find like these uh, these easy answers that sometimes in the policy world we get. Well, if we could just, you know, some loyal will say, well, if right. we could just do this, this and this. And it's just like, yeah, but then they're going to do that, that and that. And if they have more money and more people than us, like the technicalities don't work on the end where we have less power than them.
0: Well, why don't you tell us a little bit more about some of those um, most uh inspiring organizing drives that you've seen and, and the victories that you've seen tenants win together?
1: Well, I mean, first is
0: obviously the, the arc of KC tenants, you know, going from
1: small meeting rooms to, you know, 10,000 members, uh, four elected officials. Uh, I forget exactly how many millions of dollars are in their housing trust fund, but... Um, and then the Realist Housing Trust Fund board that you'll probably ever see. I've been working really deeply with uh, some folks in Kentucky. Uh, so Kentucky Tenants, um, which is a couple different chapters around the state of Kentucky that's right now in a fight for a Tenant Bill of Rights and pretty close to getting source of income and, and right to counsel. Uh, Louisville Tenant Union just passed a what I think is going to be like a fundamental shift, I hope, in the way that um, Black neighborhood community organizing works. Uh, so big shout out to, to Jessica Bellamy and the... Um, the historically Black Neighborhood Assembly in the, in the LTU, uh, they passed a Historically Black Neighborhood Ordinance, uh, which actually shifts the balance of power in historically Black neighborhoods over planning, zoning, um, and some levels of financing to to the people, right, and to 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 communities in a way that. Um, You know, honestly, I wish I had known about years ago. Right. And uh, I'm really excited to like kind of build off of. And then, you know, Bozeman tenants just elected a mayor and got rid of Airbnbs. And, you know, it's a smaller place. um, But the idea of getting in a touristy place, just just getting rid of Airbnbs, period, and then to have a mayor. Right. Like we talk about movement politics, we talk about co-governance to pass a policy and elect an executive. Um, to me, that is just an incredibly powerful combination. That says a lot about their strategy. You know, Holyoke, uh, neighbor to neighbor, was just able to uh, get a uh, Tenant Bill of Rights or Office of Tenant Protections in Holyoke. And, and to be honest, you know, a lot of these groups are nowhere near the power and potential that I think that they can can be at. And these are just some of the folks that like I'm closest to, Um, but -hmm. they're really at that cusp of like, as an organizer, really starting to understand like what you need to do. And I think there's there's a, like any organizer honest is like, yeah, you don't know what you're totally doing for a while and you're just kind of dragging people around and moving them. And so I just feel like there's like, probably eight or nine different places where people are like on this cusp where we've seen some really powerful things. Uh, but to be honest, those aren't the things that excite me the most. The things are, that excite me the most are are actually the leaders and the scale of leadership that, they're, that they've been able to use to get them and the fact that they took a much harder path to get them that they're going to take to get the next thing. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited about what we're going to see in the tenant movement in, in the coming years and then how we're able to bring that into a national story and do things like we just did, which uh, we just brought 100 tenants to D.C. for a tenant takeover. I had a power meeting with some folks at the FHFA, which we are trying to get to implement tenant protections over the $150 billion, about 20 million units of apartments that they have. Um, and so I just feel like we've been able to do a lot and we are still punching above our weight and, and still have a whole lot of weight to add to, to what we're doing. So um, a lot of great things going on and, and it's all really exciting. And ultimately, the, the coolest thing is that like we are seeing people go from dragging people around and doing a thing that they love to actually developing leaders in a way that's not just for the role. But actually, for like an organization and for a movement that is like very aware of like what it's doing, and it's not just like you know you got these people who, yeah, I'm speaking on the mic today and I'm doing what they told me to do, but I don't really get it. Uh, I just appreciate right. how, many, how many of our folks are actually getting it and actually coming up with new ideas and new strategies, and it's it's a really stimulating time to to be in this work. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com convergencemag convergence mag. Subscriptions are pay-what-you-can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies, as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening.
0: So a lot of these examples you're naming have some combination of – you know, maybe building or unit level organizing and then some kind of political expression where it's pressuring the city council or, you know, the state government or um, standing candidates for office. I, mean, I guess, is there any case that you've seen where it's like, um, the tenant unions are functioning well without having a political expression and they just work sort of like a depoliticized labor union where they're just fighting for their members on the shop floor you know at the at the building in this case and negotiating a better deal with landlords and that's that's pretty much all there is to it or is it not that that would necessarily be desirable, but I'm wondering, is it even possible? Or have you found that that, that nine times out of 10, you know, you really need to have the political power uh, in order to bring the landlords to the table as part of the equation?
1: Well, landlords are the most politically organized people that there are. I mean, if you if you look at um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, all the alphabet soup, the way our, I mean, Henry Ford has this quote, like, if everybody understood how our banking system worked, there'd be a revolution tomorrow. I feel that way about our banking system and that our housing system is like the insurance policy on our banking system. So housing is political. So me personally, like I don't, there are effective tenant unions that just do that and I don't want to like disparage them. But for me, Like, I do this work because housing is how racial capitalism is set up, and I don't believe that we can dismantle racial capitalism and and therefore, like, the more human side of just, like, all of our ability to exist on this planet without it being political and without it being racial and without it being gendered, without it being very sharply, explicitly about, like, this isn't just a housing. Like, like, that's what they want us to be. Like, oh, like, this is just the numbers and how they work. Have you ever looked at the numbers in housing? They don't make any sense. Like, how does this appreciate in value every year, no matter what happens? And... Um, so anyway, I think that that you can be effective at winning building fights at that level. But ultimately, landlords have already organized the federal government, state government, local government, planning boards, zoning boards, economic development. There are so many articulations of the power of landlords that are already in our government. We don't even really even notice it. And then if you look at cities, most cities get 40 to 60, percent, especially if they have black and brown people in them, they are getting 40 to 60 percent of their budget from HUD from ESG grants, from CDBG grants, you know, from all these things. All of that ultimately is a slush fund for landlords or to do work that uh, creates the conditions the gentry wants uh, so they can raise property values and therefore property taxes. So I think if you don't come to the understanding that, like, your rent pays someone's property taxes and that that money is actually paying, you know, is is going against your own interests, I just don't think that long-term What we're trying to do can happen, like guaranteeing housing, getting social housing, taking over buildings at scale and getting this government money to tenants um, is not going to happen with that clarity. Can you win a building fight? Could you change a community? Absolutely. But I think it's our belief that all of these things are, are inherently and deeply political. And the more we treat them as that, the more effective we can be.
0: Right on. I agree. Labor organizers like to talk about supermajority support as kind of the the, the necessary condition for uh, going on strike, especially a militant strike, and 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 see it through. You don't just want 50 percent. You don't want 70 percent. You want 90 percent. Does that principle apply um, in uh, tenant organizing when you're thinking about going on a rent strike, or can a smaller number of tenants um, still find a way to to exert a lot of leverage? I think
1: that what we're doing right now is trying to exert the most leverage with the least people, to be totally honest, like we want the most people., uh, but the reality is getting the small group of people that are gonna do the thing to like do the thing better is actually like where we build. and so, I'll answer this question again very situationally. So, like if you have, you know, there's, I've been, you know, in relationship with lots of folks who've gone on rent strike in New York City. And actually, it's one of the hardest places to do it because landlords are most prepared for it. uh, It's most possible and there's the most infrastructure around it. So, if you have, you know, a building that has 500 people in it, um, absolutely, you want 450 people. You want as many people as you can get. Then, if you have a trailer park that's got eight people in it, um, having four people say, nah, we're not feeling this. Like, has an enormous impact. And that's that's I think the part that we're figuring out right now is that we have a set of strategies and we have a lot of work that we've done and ways that we figured it out. And there are some times when those four people literally just asking for a meeting sends that landlord like through the roof. And there are times when we have an enormous amount of people and they're like, what, what are you going to do? Uh, and, that, and that's the difference between, you know, Kansas City, Chicago, Buffalo, Louisville, Bozeman, or or places that, you know, I won't even name because no one would, would recognize the name. So I think ultimately a lot of it, like you said, is about the target and the leverage that we have on the target and our understanding of it. And I think that's a new thing for tenants because tenants believe, oh, yeah, I just I deserve to live in a decent place. I don't care who my landlord is, but who your landlord is really defines that. And so I think some might consider that reactionary, but I think it's actually really important that... We understand our target and how to move our target and what is actually going to make them afraid of us, uh, make them want to negotiate with us or want different outcomes than the ones that we can create. So I would say that principle always applies, that we want as much power as we can get. And also, most tenants have never thought about this stuff ever. So sometimes just getting those four tenants that sit in that community room every Tuesday to say, we're going to get four more and do a meeting um, has, has been as effective in some cases as as you know most of the building being ready to go based on the target the conditions uh, and I think that's also why the union is important both the citywide union and the building union because people uh, and this is also how unions develop right experienced union. Folks went to other places and said, hey, you should try this. You should do this. We should build international labor relations schools, right? I I hope one day we have international tenant relations schools that are not as classes as the ones as ILRs we have, but that are like saying like, this is a thing, right? This is not just like, oh, these poor tenants, we want them to do better. But actually, this is like a fundamental way that we negotiate what our society looks like. So long ass, yes and.
0: We've been thinking about this a little bit in Lansing because like there have been some efforts at organizing like some some really large buildings that were uh, notoriously slummy and uh, terrible landlords. But, you know, one of them has like 600 units in it, but it's just tough. You know, they they, they, they let they're happy to let 40 of these uh, of these units sit red tagged for years on end because um, they've, they've got enough revenue coming out of the complex otherwise. So uh, when you've got a dozen tenants. Uh, it's a little tough to, to, to kind of uh, get their attention at least that's what people have found and so we've been asking ourselves uh, well maybe maybe we could try to find a, a, a smaller shop and uh, uh, where uh, just for where our frankly where our organizing chops are really? um, and, and our experience level which is which is not that great we need to find some some slightly smaller shops where we can um, you know bring bring more power to the table and get to that negotiation stage that you're talking about no, I think that's
1: that's absolutely real, and and I would love to get the address of this place because my bet is one of the reasons why they're okay with that is that they're getting a lot of subsidy, and if we start affecting the subsidy, um, that might be able to change some of the dynamic, and some of these places are just hard, and we haven't figured it out yet. I definitely don't want to come out right here like we, we've figured everything out, uh, but what we have, we're, we're trying to do shit out of.
0: Yeah, well, the, the research part of this is so important. I know because a- every union worth its salt has a good research department, and based on what you're saying, it sounds like that ought to be the case for tenants' unions as well. Because the kind of subsidy they're getting, uh, where their finance comes from, uh, from the landlord perspective, is, is of critical importance. Uh,
1: absolutely. I mean, if they're in a real estate investment trust, and we're at a shareholder meeting, and we're you know in you know the state house, and we're we're at the federal house, those those things. Uh, are significant and and sometimes not even just the effect that we can have but just the idea from a strategic standpoint that like the landlord comes into a room full of people that know what they're talking about and know who they are, I think totally changes the, the dynamic because most landlords walk into a room and say, all right, here's how things are going to go, right? Blah, 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 blah. And when you can say, actually, let's take a look at your books, right? Let's take a look at where you get your money from. Yeah, we only have 12 tenants here, but we've actually, you know, and, and really kind of doing that power analysis. So that's the stuff that really excites me uh, and excites me about, I think, the cumulative kind of nature of organizing that, like, people don't think things can be done until they get done. And so the more we do, the more tenants are coming to us, the more people are calling us up. And so I think you're right, like doing really well in a small shop and just showing folks like, hey, it is actually possible to do this at this scale, uh, then helps people see, you know, what's 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 possible to do at a, at a larger scale.
0: So I want to move into a couple of um uh, maybe more high-level questions out of the organizing questions. You've alluded to this, but you know, since the 1930s, we've had the National Labor Relations Act, which creates the legal framework within which labor unions operate. And there's been a mixed result of that, and there uh, are downsides. But uh, one of the results is that it is quite clear what one needs to do in order to form a labor union, achieve recognition, exercise strike power, negotiate, win a contract. And that doesn't mean it's easy, but the win conditions are, are quite clear. It would seem that it, it's a little bit less so um, for tenants' unions um, because w- there's no guiding legal framework. There isn't a, an arbitration authority like the uh, NLRB. And so it's a bit more of like uh, the Wild West when it comes to the the methods of forming a tenants' union and then where that union finds its leverage and how it negotiates. Um, would you agree with that assessment or am I overstating that somehow? Well, I just
1: think that... Um one of the major differences is that, like, the labor market, like, if if you tried to do this, the strategies to build unions today that happened then, um, I don't know how effective they would be. And I think that, like, so much of our world is actually designed in reaction to the labor movement, civil rights movement, really, like, being very anti-movement. So I think and I also just think that sometimes we we do this thing where, like, because the policy is powerful today, we forget that it was the practice of organizing and a negotiation that produced that policy. And actually, there's there's way more radical things that the folks who like started the, the NLRB like wanted right. wanted to do. So I think we like kind of separate like we're going to practice because uh, we believe that practice and power are how we're going to get what we want to get. And, and that actually like those things are only going to happen when we do have Um, Lots of people organizing and testing the limits of the existing system. Um, I think that there are a lot of thoughts and ideas about an office of tenant protections, uh, about different structures that are very similar. And I think that, like, we're going to have to do some new things. And that, like, just to your point about research, I mean, answering who owns a property is as difficult as a landlord wants it to be. Right, I think actually Larry Fink is the largest property holder in the world, and you know on the books, you know he he makes a modest twenty-two million dollars a year, and he has one or two properties in his own name, and you and you can't really prove how much he actually owns and controls. So I I think that it's really important that we are both hyper focused on like each individual situation and then pulling out of that situation a story that's like, what is the infrastructure we need to help people like relate back to that? And I think we're in a 2023 is a time where there's just so many different situations and dynamics. It is hard to like pin down, like this is exactly the policy that we need. The one thing we do know is that the federal government subsidizes the majority of landlords and they should have to at the very least offer tenants, the warranty of habitability, the basic things in order to, to do that. And I think from that point forward, we'll grow. And so I don't want to go on and on, but I think the important thing is like, like, are the individual tenants we work for all more powerful than they were the day that we met them? And what can we learn from them about what needs to happen in the future are like the most important questions. And then the answers I think will look both similar and different to, to some of the arc of like national labor relations. And I'm, I'm excited also about working more with unions around that, because if you ask most of, we we have so many people who come from unions and are just like, I work in a union, i have been negotiating my contracts, but like the rent is just going up so much faster than even like union organizing is able to maintain wages that I think there'll also be a point where we work together a lot more, I hope.
0: Yeah. So, uh, if something like an office of tenant protection would be like that's like the compromise bureaucratic solution you know <laughs> if we, if we were to ever be be one, what is like the the political horizon that's above and beyond that that you think um, tenants should be Uh, should be fighting for? I mean, is it something around land reform? I mean, looking at these issues, you start to think about land use, how, how much of this whole system is designed to prop up private property ownership, how unquestionable it is that private property ownership is allowed to continue and that our municipal governments go to so much effort to package and cite potential developments uh, only to give them away pretty much with no strings attached back to the private sector so that they can just achieve more lucrative profits on it. I mean, this is stuff that has been really radicalizing for me to really look at and, and understand more deeply, even in my local situation. You know, working on climate, I thought that I was radical and I saw some pretty horrific things, but something about looking at these housing issues, landlord and tenancy Really goes right to the heart of these property relations in a way that is deeply disturbing, but also enlightening. So, if our goal is to be highlighting this situation um, to the greatest extent possible through the you know, immediate struggles that people are facing around their, their, their housing access and housing security, yeah, what, what's like the, the big horizon uh, in terms of what we actually deserve um, that we ought to be fighting for? Um,
1: the big horizon is social housing. You know, just the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is $150 billion a year. That would be enough to, you know, socialize 20 million units. And that's that's yearly, right? And we, we put that in every single year to maintain profits. And so I think that there is more than enough money. There are more than enough buildings. There's more than enough space. And there's more than enough people who are actually willing to do the work of maintaining community. I think, you know, when you do this work, you also see, like, there's a Mr. Fix-It in every building that's helping everyone who who the the super won't fix. Or, you know, you you also see that, like, we can do this. And in fact, we're doing an enormous amount of labor to maintain where we live. And that's a big part of patriarchy and our disconnection from the reproductive labor and from, like, you know, and just the ways, you know, to me, this is all just like how capitalists have commodified it, right? We all want to garden, we all want to make food for each other, we all want to do these things, but they make a Home Depot and, uh, you know, Target and all these other ways. So for me, the long-term vision is that the federal government's resources that are ours be entirely put in the hands of tenants Um, And that tenants run their own spaces. And that doesn't mean every single tenant is totally responsible for every single building. Because I know plenty of people in Buffalo in the BMHA where there's three or four guys would say, hey, we would take care. You just, you know, you just gave us some 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 pizza and beer. We would take care of this entire building and just the resources to do it. So I, I have this like, you know, beloved community, you know, very Dr. King inspired vision of of a place where we all get to dictate the terms of where we live and we get the resources to do that. And we also get to choose how our labor relates to, to where we live together. And I think the beautiful part is it's already happening. It happens, but we have these barriers. We have these limits, these dynamics that really keep us from investing in each other. Um, and I think at its best, when I've seen this work work well, it's been able to create these like little bubbles uh, outside of, of, of capitalism, where people really are working together to maintain their space. And when people can do that, even if it gets taken away, you can see that they're stronger people. Like, you can just see the wheels turn differently. They look at things and life differently. And my hope is that that's how we get to you know, climate catastrophe and some of these larger things is that if we actually own and control and feel real power over our homes, we can start to say, okay, then what Around our homes and around these other concentric mm-hmm. circles, and just recognize that there is a real intrinsic relationship between uh, the oil industry, the housing, you know, market, and that like there's this, you know from, from Rockefeller to J.P. Morgan, there's a crew of people, you know, in the early 1900s who really planned out all the ways that we're gonna live, right? Um, that that destroyed electric cars in our city, that destroyed the so it's like the same people destroyed so many of the visions that we're kind of alluding to. And and they 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 came together, right? They were, you know, they were not necessarily all the way in each other's interest, but they had a really bold vision for like what if everybody drives cars and lives in individual houses in the suburbs and the federal government pays for it all? Like that is a wild and crazy vision. And I think that we can have a similar one of like, what if we live in cities where all those choices are all up to actually the people who live in those cities. And and then they're up to the people who live in those neighborhoods. And so I think when you get down to like doing one-on-ones, like that's what people really want is they want choices and options and the ability to negotiate them themselves without someone else coming and just wiping it or snatching it all away. And so I think the vision is social housing, but I don't, the way that that word has been played with now and all the reports and stuff that are going on about that. Social housing is you getting to decide what the fuck you want, where the fuck you live, with the people that you care about. And yes, all the technical stuff is really important, but I just want to make sure that like it is not a lefty theoretical concept. It is mm-hmm. actual like genuine community and mm-hmm. the fact that our government it right now is paying for us to be out of community, and I think we can fix that. Well,
0: and the foundation I'm hearing also is is. The home's guarantee. That's the foundation of social housing is that everyone is guaranteed the ability to have, uh, to have housing. And then you get to determine the terms or maybe the exact kind of situation that you want to be in. But uh, no one is going to be unhoused.
1: Absolutely. And no one is going to be told how to be housed, right? Like that's, that's the mm-hmm. part where there's some people like, yeah, everybody will be housed. But there's not a lot of people who are like and housed how they want to be housed.
0: hmm Mhm. I don't know if we all get to be housed in the McMansion in the suburbs. That would maybe be the exception there. There are certain aspects of the American dream that need to die.
1: Oh, yeah. Um,
0: but uh maybe that's another episode. Uh so then something I've I I see locally and I also have um observed in other contexts, I think including in some of the work that you've been a part of in in Buffalo is that for tenant um, and housing advocacy organizations, there's a temptation to want to become a low-income housing provider. Mm -hmm. And I I see this come up all the time in conversations here in Lansing. You know, land is available. Old buildings are available. There's such a crisis with uh, access to uh, affordable housing. It's very tempting to say, okay, we're going to do this on our own terms. We can do better by our people than a corporate landlord will do. But then this also comes with risks of you know turning into uh, a, a service provision organization rather than a tenant power organization. Uh, what can you say um, uh, based on your own experience and things you've seen elsewhere about kind of the ups and downs of, of that question? And what would you say to folks who are asking this question for themselves now if, if they should get into that side of it?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I, this is why we do this work. Um, the low-income housing tax credit is a, is a tax credit, right? That's its primary purpose. And in order... I mean, if you look at the deals that get cut, I know them about them in New York State probably more than anywhere else. Uh, but there's some fundamental core to the deal that you cut uh, when you get that money. The first is that you get a developer fee, right? Um, and so that developer fee is like theoretically supposed to be like a loan loss reserve or something that you kind of keep aside in case there are you know fundamental things that are that are wrong with the house. You also are agreeing that you are accepting the area median in income. You're accepting a range of that area median income. That's actually been more negotiable lately. That's, like, one of the liberal things that's been happening lately is, like, just because if you look at the Bay and Atlanta and certain places, like, the numbers are just, like, so crazy that there is some adjustment. But you have to accept an income range. And you have to accept that people are going to get evicted if they don't fit that income range. And I think decertification – they. Those who like aren't familiar with it, like whenever you're part of any kind of public resource, unless you're a capitalist, you have to do this thing called recertification, where you are saying, "I received this service, like I applied for it, I received it. My economic condition are still the same." And what I saw is that I actually could, in housing court, prevent an eviction easier than I could prevent someone being displaced because of a low-income housing tax credit recertification. Right. Because it's actually part of the deals. You say we're going to certify everybody twice a year. And if they don't meet this income range again, and, and what happens with poor people? Right. You get a job, you lose a job, you have a kid, your kid moves out, your friend wants to move in with you because they don't have a place to stay. So if the purpose for me was affordable housing, was stability, uh, was community, uh, it absolutely does not provide that. And and for the people who does, they have to do an enormous amount of work and really has these tropes about people lying on their food stamp. But, but it's just like if you literally are living in a house for six months and then you say, oh, man, I just got a job that paid me $4 an hour better, then not lying says, okay, well, now I got my $4 an hour job and before I have any time to accumulate any of the money that might get me a decent place. I've got to move out of this place. And so I think like anybody who's interested in that, read the contracts, read the deal that you're cutting, understand it. If you don't want to, I'd be happy to talk to you about it um, and train other people to talk to about it. Because again, there's this assumption that like affordable is good, but it's like affordable for who? And then it's for the working class. Well, the working class is not what it was in 1968 when when, when these numbers were created and the adjustment mechanisms for inflation are, are are just ridiculous. So ultimately, when you become a low-income housing provider, your, your job, You're on the hook for protecting your assets and you're on the hook for maintaining the structure that the federal government gave you to get those tax credits. So to me, I think that there are other ways that we can acquire housing. And I think that's why I'm really interested in in Freddie Mac, Fannie Mac and in, in the in the because the income is a very limiting thing. And then the choices, you don't have a lot of choices about how low-income housing is built. People in the, you know, I was told like, oh, you get to be a community development organizer. You can help these people decide like how their community is gonna look. That plan has already been made. Uh, it's been made, it's been zoned and there's so many limitations on it. I think those limitations can and should be challenged and I'm down to help anybody else do that. But for me, getting groups of tenants clear on how to get their interests met is actually at the root of it. The rest is like the tactical reactions we have to what's on there. And that's what wasn't happening in a lot of these organizations. That's what's not happening uh, in most affordable housing situations is you're not getting tenants. You know, people teach them about their rights, but that's all their own responsibility and that's all about court. It's not about how did this place get here, right? Who paid for it? Who, who do you have leverage over? Who's getting credit for it now? And ultimately, it's a huge tax break, right? So like at the other end of it, so if I'm getting a developer fee and my developer fee is 15 to 20 percent of the project total project costs. And then that that is part of a tax break. We actually both have an incentive to inflate the value of what's there. Right. So that's why you're starting to see these like $300, 400 four million dollar affordable housing projects, because that means the people who purchase those tax credits get four hundred million dollars off in tax credits. It means the developer of it gets 15 for 20 percent of it off the rip. And that goes to an organization that could be private, could be public. So there's a lot of hustle to our housing market. There's a lot of ways to make enormous amounts of money. And then there's a lot of deals that you don't realize you're cutting until you have a tenant in crisis. And you say, oh, well, I own this building, so I should be able to do this. And then they're like, "Uh, actually, if you look at this 182-page contract that we signed, until these tax credits have emergized, until all the capitalists have gotten all their benefits out of them, you actually have to keep it this way. And then the day that, they, that they're that they not like that, now you have to pay full price and your tenants have to pay full price. So to me, it's kind of this like really interesting setup um, that along with the, you know, 1986, uh, you know, creating 501C, 1, 2, 3, you know, the whole range, you know, is an interesting political deal where it's like, okay, fine. You guys want some housing? Cool. We're just gonna benefit more from it. And that's how politics works. And I think we've just because some people don't look at moments like that and don't study them and actually look at like what happened here then it just becomes oh affordable housing is a good thing we should all fight for affordable housing and i don't want to say it's a bad thing but it is the result of landlords running our economy um and and not actually doing what's in the interest of of a individual tenant but in what's kind of theoretically in the interest of like oh yeah affordable housing helps tenants well talk to people who live in affordable housing, and they will tell you that it helped them for a moment, but but long-term, it did not provide what, what social housing could.
0: It seems like housing security is a principle that we really ought to be emphasizing rather than affordability, because affordability is something that can show up in an index and we say, okay, there's X amount of affordable housing in this city, but you've just identified all the ways in which that's not actually providing the housing on a durable basis that people, especially poor people, actually need. So the question is about security. Do you have housing now? But also, will you? do you have the confidence that you'll be able to have it next month, next year, and on into the future? Let's, let's index that. I would love to see that. All right, so um, uh, I just have two more questions um, by way of conclusion. Are there tendencies or behaviors out there in the tenant organizing world that you think are barriers? That we need to dispense with or move or overcome in order to um, build the kind of tenant power movement that we need to see?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I think the number one is, is training and leadership development. Like I met you at a week long, however many years ago. Yeah. Um, 2014. 2014. Yeah. It's been, it's, you know, we sure we could go for hours on both of our personal journeys of what we've learned. But I think the the biggest barrier is actually patience, right? And the patience and the willingness to do the leadership development work that we understand is effective at doing, you know, not just a one-on-one, but really like the goal of understanding people's self-interests and actually figuring out, is this person actually interested in this work? Not like, are they a person that I can convince because they have similar ideas, but like, are they in their gut about what we're doing here? And I think that's hard because people put up a lot of barriers to that, right? Um, Because showing up in your gut in daily life in 2023 is a quick way to get fired, arrested, all all the things. And so I think really at the root of it, I've got all these technical answers, but like most people are not doing this from their guts and they're not doing this about themselves. They're doing it about ideas. They're doing it about abstract futures. And and those things are good. Believe me, I'm an Afrofuturist. I'm a big nerd. I think about that stuff all the time. But when it comes to having a meeting in a building, like, I'm not thinking about these questions. Like, I think, you know, there's somewhere in the back there, but it's like, who are these people? What do they want? How did they get here? And what are actually their barriers to being as powerful as they could be um, and as they want to be? And so I think that element of like, people actually want to be more powerful and not this liberal like, oh, these poor people who are all victims of capitalism, like let's gather them all and like run a campaign where we're, you know, we're moving a target, but we're actually not changing the way that people think and feel about their own lives, their experience and how the world works. And so to me, I think what has made our work really powerful and special is that, you know, our team and every organization that we work with is made a real commitment to being patient with leaders, to moving at the speed of trust, to, you know, obviously there's always going to be things you have to do, but when you meet that person and you have those moments, like you have to treat those things as sacred uh, because we're not going to figure all this out all at once, um, but we're going to get a lot better at it the more people we have to figure it out with us. And I feel like really good about, you know, the 100 folks that we just brought for our tenant takeover. I feel really great about, you know i've 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 done a lot of national work a lot of coalition work across the board in a lot of different ways but i feel so good about what we're doing because i genuinely believe that we have like teams of people around the country that are deeply interested in getting better and getting more clear about how to develop other people's leadership and so all that other stuff is going to get figured out as long as people don't stop developing leaders and and also Are willing to actually like negotiate with leaders and have them do things you don't want to do or you don't think is strategic, as long as there's an actual relationship and conversation. And I think a lot of, we've got a lot of very professional, technical folks. We've got a lot of commies who, you know, want to explain and share their communism with the world. And to me, you know, while I believe in all those things, I'm actually like really obsessed with material conditions with like a group of people in a building with a person and their situations. And I think like what I find is often people want me and other people at this level of work to give them like a playbook to like, give them like quick rapid answers and say, well, if we just got everybody on the same page, what would we do? And it's like, no, getting everyone on the same page, like is the doing, like is the practice of, of what we need to do. And so, I would just say this like stop poaching people stop hiring people stop hiring people and not training them um stop having jobs as executive directors if you don't really want them because you're just scared of things you know bad things happening like that's right I, i like we need people to develop people uh because it is not in our interest how this world works it's it's not in in the majority of our interests and so i believe that if we just take the time to actually help people understand what's in their interests and give them a little bit of the tools they need to get it, this organizing thing works. And I just feel like so many people who I hear talk about it don't actually believe in it and aren't willing to take the risk of not doing a thing sometimes, of not looking the coolest, of not sounding the smartest, and of just like being a real person with some other real people figuring some things out. And I feel like if we had more folks who are willing to do that, I think a lot more leadership development would happen and therefore we'd have a lot more sustainable organizations uh, and a lot less of this like kind of like professional gamesmanship of like what the future of our world is going to look like.
0: Hmm. You're getting me fired up. Um, leadership development is like is like our theme for 2024 here in Michigan. Um, so um Let's build something. Let's do it. Um, So with with that all in mind, um, just to close us out, why don't you just give us an optimistic account of how uh, the tenant movement uh, could progress over the next decade or so and what role it can play in a, you know, broader left progressive front that's um, fighting for everything we deserve.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, Snatch, but uh, one of my favorite characters of all time is Bulletproof Tony. Uh Never underestimate the predictability of stupidity. The American housing system is going to continue to double double down on what it's been doing, which is costing it exponentially more money to produce the same things. And I ultimately think that what we saw in 2008, what we saw in 2020, uh, which while well, other people might see them as really bad things, where there's a combination of those things that are always happening. The housing market is always collapsing, and there's a set of people who are on an unintentional rent strike, an unable rent strike, right? And so I just think that over, regardless of what what we do here, Over the course of the next 30 years, this is contradiction is going to get more and more intense and people are going to organize themselves around it. My hope is that we can share the experience that we have and the methodology that we have, but it's going to happen. People are not going to be able to pay the rent. The rent is only going to get higher, similar to the, uh, I think they call it the lag effect or the Aleppo effect, right? We actually haven't seen the scale Of inflation um, that we should have because of this subsidy. And so, you know, I feel like a lot of these, there's some economic stalling that's going on until after the next presidential election. But I think stuff is going to get bad. And as it gets bad, tenants are going to be more and more interested in building power. More of those tenants are going to build power. And I think right now we have a land. If you look at Congress, everyone in Congress owns land. Everyone is either invested in a real estate investment trust or they have a multifamily property. And there was this multifamily movement and the tenant union is going to be the reaction to the multifamily movement. And I think the more and more I see big amounts of money being dumped into making home ownership more affordable and accessible, the more also we're going to see foreclosures and more of the awareness of of the bank tenant. And then as yeah. as these these communities need more and more money, property taxes are still the driving force of, of most of the local politics. And so um, as the housing market collapses, it, it one of the major reasons that they bailed all of our governments out uh, was because if we don't have a housing market, we don't have a property tax base, and this country cannot function. And so I think housing is the infrastructure of racial capitalism. It is slowly being picked apart by its own hubris, by its own arrogance. Uh, and I think all of us operating out of our interests can lead us to a point where the only choice that they have to maintain a society is actually to take the money out of that they've been dumping on landlords out of the hands of landlords and give them to well-organized people. And I don't, I don't want to say they're just going to throw it at everybody, uh, but to well-organized people who've been doing the work and who've been clear and developing leaders. I believe that regardless of our policy outlook, piece by piece, tenants are going to start to take that piece of this country. And my hope is that if we do that, in combination with a powerful like political methodology uh, that we can exert the power and will that landlords have over this country as tenants uh, and hopefully uh, keep a place for human beings to exist for the next uh, in perpetuity ad nauseum or whatever they say in those legal documents.
0: Sounds good. Uh, let's build power. John, this has been really great. I appreciate your time and i um, definitely going to follow up about um, getting you linked up with um, our tenants movement here in Michigan.
1: Awesome, awesome. Thanks so much for having me.
0: This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. This has been The Hegemonicon, Let's talk again soon.